I'm excited. We are on our third week of Partners in the Gospel, and I'm really excited and, and grateful and thankful to have Pastor Ryan here from Foundation um, bringing the word this morning. Pastor Aaron is on his way back from Alaska. He had a, a sounds like a great vacation with his family. And so we're just really thankful for Pastor Ryan for uh, Foundation Church up in Everett. We actually have partnered with him on multiple occasions. And our history goes pretty far back, and he'll, he'll explain some more about that uh, if you haven't already heard about that. But we have partnered for, the most recently was the parenting conference that we did, that some of you attended. We also partnered, our student ministries partnered for summer camp last year. Um, I'm missing one thing. Sojourn Network, that's right. We both are a part, that's like the most important one. We're both a part of a church planning network called Sojourn Network, which you've probably heard about. If you, if you haven't, you can go find out some more information on our website. Uh, there's some blog posts, but we're both a part of that church planning network, which is really cool. Uh, it's just part of our DNA, and so um, he'll explain some more about that, but, uh, about the church planning stuff. But um, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and hand over to Jenny. I'll invite Jenny to come on up for our scripture reading this morning. And uh, yeah, we're thankful to have Pastor Ryan, so... If you want to open up to Proverbs 18. Proverbs 18.1. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. Good morning, Sound City. It's great to be with you. Uh, thank you for the introduction, Kyle. Um, if you didn't catch it, my name's Ryan Williams. I'm one of the pastors at Foundation Church, uh, just up, up in Everett, right in downtown Everett. And we are incredibly thankful for your friendship. Uh, to, to be friends uh, with a church so close, uh, we have such a deep history with one another, uh, really allows us to do uh, the things like, like we, we've, we've, we've done together, the parenting conference, and to come together and be a part of the same church planning network and to put on training and support uh, for, for our people, for the forward progress of the gospel here in Snohomish County and beyond. And so uh, I'm just incredibly thankful for the opportunity to be here on Aaron's tiny pulpit, Tiny, tiny, small pulpit. It looks like something that he would do a CrossFit workout on, um, but I kind of feel like a grizzly bear riding a tricycle on this tiny, tiny thing here. I might just like knock it over accidentally, uh, but, but it's okay, it's okay. Um, recently, Aaron and I uh, went down to Florida for the Sojourn Network Husbands and Wives Retreat. Uh, and now, you might already be cluing on to some of the problem with me going with Aaron, because my wife didn't go because we have little kiddos and like uh, three plane rides sounded like a terrible idea. And he didn't go because at any point in time he has between five and 53 children living with him. And so it was too hard. And so we got to go down to the husband and wives retreat together and stay in the same room. So I'll let Aaron tell you the horror stories, but uh, it was like spending a, spending a few days with Freddie Mercury with that terrible mustache that he has. And so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I probably could do 45 minutes on just railing against mustaches um, from here, but that's okay. We, we have something of, of hopefully some more value to you uh, to dig on today. And so if you've got your Bible, have it open to Proverbs 18, verse 1. The sermon title is Foolish Isolation. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to get into it. Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy to us, your people. Thank you that your church, Church Universal, exists um, to serve and to love and to partner 
with one another, that local churches uh, can partner and to, can support and pray for and champion one another's cause. Lord, we're not in competition with one another. And that what a beautiful kingdom mindset it is to have that we can, can just be with uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, even, whether it be 15 minutes down the road, whether it be uh, anywhere in this country, whether it be anywhere in this world, Lord. I'm so thankful that your church is universal, that you are the Lord of it and that we can encourage one another. Lord, we, we ask specifically today, would you be at work through your word, that, that your word would go out and achieve the purpose for which you sent it and would not return to you null or void, where we pray that Jesus might be made much of through the preaching of your word, that we might look to him uh, as, our, as our savior, as our Lord, that we might look to him as the author and perfecter of our faith, the one in whom we can trust. Holy Spirit, we ask that you might work through the Word of God, illuminate the person of Jesus Christ today, challenge and convict our hearts where they need to be challenged and convicted, encourage us where we need encouragement, lead us and guide us to be your people, living on your mission to glorify the name of Jesus in this place, in our neighborhoods, in our our networks, wherever we might go, Lord, we pray that your Spirit would lead us and guide us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you guys know that like one of the most dangerous things that you can do in your daily life is to drive your car? Like you, you, many, like we all probably got here driving this morning. I don't know if anyone lives like on the grounds here or next door, but if you did, you got to walk here, which is a slightly safer mode of transportation than driving. Driving is actually, when you look at all the modes of transportation, it's actually one of the most dangerous we have, uh, in, in this country alone, 35,000 people each year die from car accidents. 35,000. Like, just take a moment to think about how huge that number is. 35,000 people die from car accidents. It's a staggeringly large number. And we've seen all of the, the safety campaigns. We've seen kind of safety in vehicles get better over the years as engineers have worked tirelessly to, to make vehicles safer for people who are in them so that when they're in a crash, the, 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 they're, they're, the possibility of them dying is even lower than it used to be. We've seen um, even now in Washington State legislation in the last couple of weeks, the just distracted driving law coming in saying, hey, uh, it's probably not a good idea to be texting while you're doing 65 on the freeway because you're probably not going to see if road conditions change, right? Like as much as you hate the government, I think we can all agree that not texting at 65 miles an hour is probably a good thing. But would it surprise you if I told you that you have almost twice as high a likelihood of dying by staying home? Each year, in the United States, around 74,000 people die from accidental slips and trips and accidental poisonings in the United States by making a mistake, having an accident. About 74,000 people die each year. But we don't have major legislation coming in of the distracted pill-taking or distracted walking in your home. Or you libertarians are like, no, the government isn't allowed in my house. Agreed, agreed. Nor should we have that. But the numbers quite simply speak for themselves, saying that that more people die at home just as a result of an accident than they do on the roads. Now, 
many factors that lead to this, but I think what I want us to understand is that the large public outcry, the kind of public movement towards creating safer and better vehicles, the kind of uh, the government initiatives that say, let's train and teach kids how to drive better, let's get people into better cars, let's, let's take in and bring in distracted driving laws so that people can have a kind of like the law can exist as, as something that's like, well, you know what, I don't want to get a ticket, so I'm not going to do it anymore we see that the large public outcry because of the accidents that happen on our roads pales, sorry, it's huge in comparison to the outcry that happens for all of the accidental deaths in our homes. And quite simply, all that exists to tell us is that when car accidents happen, they affect the community in a far greater way than when death at home in isolation happens. So we see it, we're impacted by it. We've all driven by wrecks. We've all seen them. We've all felt the the kind of concern for the people in there. We know what it's like when we see accidents that happen in public as opposed to an accident that happens in private, that the, the outcry and the response is far greater. See, primarily, when things happen in isolation, we don't hear about them. All the story is told, but it doesn't really affect us in any way. We're not going to make big changes in our life and how we live just because somebody accidentally took the wrong medication or because somebody fell over at home. See, behind closed doors, the response and the requirement for us to change the way we live doesn't exist as much as it does if accidents and bad things happen in the public eye. See, isolation can allow for difficult, painful things to flourish. Difficult, painful things can go unnoticed. And when those same things are brought out into the light of the community, a response happens, we see decrease, we see hope. See, occasionally, in isolation, a, a nice song or a good novel is written. But generally, when bad things happen, It's done in isolation. See, and today we get to study the wisdom of the Proverbs. See, the Proverbs give us good understanding on how we are to live our life. They provide us with warnings. They're kind of like warning signs or guardrails that say, hey, this is probably not wise. Today we get to look at a proverb that speaks to isolation and community. And it's my hope that we will understand as God's people some of how God has created us to live in community, that we will avoid the pitfalls of isolation by striving and understanding that we, as God's people, exist in community. Proverbs 18.1, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. See, in this part of the book, of Proverbs, what we see kind of happening is that there are these different characters that pop up here and there, and they're they're usually described in certain ways. We see the character of the lazy or the, the sluggard. We see the poor. We see the scoffer, the rich, 
the righteous. These are all kind of caricatures that the, the one who writes these Proverbs is providing us with. He's saying, well, you know what? The lazy person is like this. The poor person is like this. The rich are like this. The righteous do this. And then we get to the character we're studying today. And this is the study of the fool. The Proverbs have a lot to say about the fool. The Proverbs are, if you want to just like simplify it and bring it into kind of today's language, the Proverbs, if you read them, they're kind of like tweets about wisdom. Like 140 characters or less, let's kind of summarize a big thought and let's just push it out there and see what happens. And that's what the Proverbs are. And today, it's kind of like a tweet about what fools do. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. That's what a a fool does. A fool isolates themselves. Now, I want to be very careful here because all of the introverts in the room are like, like grabbing for things, like looking for the exits. Like, how do I get away from the 300 pound Australian preacher who loves hanging out with people? He's going to get up here and he's going to tell me how wicked and evil and sinful I am because I'm an introvert. No, I don't want to do that. See, introverts um, were always like vampires to me. Like they, they, I just didn't understand them, right? They like would go into the sun, the vampires go in the sun, they're like, ah, introverts would be around people and they're like, ah, like this is like, oh no, I'm melting because people are around me and I never understood them. I never understood you. And then I married one of you. <laughs> and I had to learn that I don't get to call my wife a vampire, number one. We learn these things the hard way. And that rather than not liking people or rather than kind of shrinking away from people, introverts generally just don't get energized by being around people. See, as an extrovert, I, like, I love being around people. Like I'm, I'm, I'm excited when I get to talk to people. I'm excited when I'm hanging around with people. I'm excited when there's this fast conversation and, and I'm like, you know, when I leave a party or leave a gathering, I'm kind of like bouncing around. So I'm like, yeah, that was so cool. That was amazing. And then my wife is taking a nap. She's like, I'm just so, ex- so, so exhausted. I hated that. And she doesn't mean that she actually hated the community. She hated the fact that it just completely drains her. And so as, as we're kind of talking about this fool, this character in, in this proverb here, introverts, I'm not going after you. I'm going after all of us. Because even extroverts can have the tendency, the sinful tendency to hide away who they are. To press away from being known. I don't want anyone to know me. If they, they truly knew who I was, I oh man, they wouldn't like me, they'd reject me. And so we all contend towards isolation as a self-defense mechanism, as a sinful reaction, whether it be fear of being known, whether it be shame about who we are, whether it be guilt about something that we've done. Each and every one of us can find ourselves isolated and pushing away community. What the proverb is talking about here, the type of person this proverb is talking about is this, Crawford Toy, who's a, who's a theologian, put it this way. He says, the subject of this line, this proverb, refers to a person who keeps himself separated or holds himself aloof from his friends or from society, an unsociable man. 
See, now when we read this, it kind of can give us a better, better frame of reference, right? He's not going after extroverts or introverts. He's not going after people who are a little, created a little differently. He's going after those who actively push away people from them, unsociable people. It's what a fool does. A fool is an unsociable man or woman. See, the one who isolates themselves. The one who does this, the one who has tendencies towards isolation, isn't on the right track. They're not kind of on the track towards flourishing and joy and fullness of life. They're on the exact opposite track. They're on the track to destruction, the track to make a wreck of their life. They're on a track in which they will find themselves filled with shame, filled with fear, and filled with guilt. It's not going to go well for them. Why? Why? I've got four points that I'm going to go through, but we're going to try and answer the question, well, why is it so foolish to seek isolation? Why is it so foolish to do that? What is, what is so fundamentally wrong about moving in that direction? Well, my first point is quite simply this, that It is so foolish to seek isolation because it's in direct opposition to how God has made you. It's in direct opposition to how God has made you. We, as humans, are image bearers of God. You don't need to read too far into the Bible. Actually, just the first chapter of the first book will tell you that in His image we were made. Man is made in the image of God, right? And so if that's something that each and every one of us has on us, whether we're Christians or not Christians, whether we're we're smart or dumb, whether we're white or black or, or somewhere in between, we are made in the image of God. And you say, ah, okay. Okay, well, well, God, God is one, right? So I can just go and, if I'm made in the image of God, then I'll just be one, Well, no. No, God, the Christian God, the God of the Bible, something that makes him uniquely God to us, is that God is not just one, but one in three persons. See, God exists in the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit exist together in perfect community with one another. This is a distinctly Christian belief that God is Trinitarian. The New City Catechism puts it this way, and a catechism is just kind of like a collection of thoughts and a collection of deep truth that that are kind of explained in question and answer. And this is how they answer this question. How many persons are there in God? The answer, there are three persons in the one true and living God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're the same in substance, equal in power and glory. See, biblically, we see this truth kind of play out in in, in the way that Paul addresses the Corinthian church in his letter to them. 2 Corinthians 13, 14, Paul, providing us with some Trinitarian theology, says this, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Paul signs off his letter to the Corinthian church saying, yes, God is one, and God exists as Son, Father, and Spirit. You're like, well, that's, that's great. 
Okay, cool. God is Trinitarian. Well, now if we take that Trinitarian understanding of who God is, and we then go back all the way to Genesis chapter 1, and we say, if humanity is made in the image of God, and God exists within perfect community with himself, aren't then we as humans designed to live in community with one another? Yes. Yes, we are. We are designed to live in community with one another, to fully experience what it is to be human happens by us living in community with one another. Just as God would be less than God if one of the members of the Godhead were no longer there, we are less than human by existing in isolation. It is something that is deeply in our DNA, that we desire to be known, that we desire to be in community with one another. We're at a high school right now. And I don't know what your high school was like. I don't know how it played out for you in high school. But I know that in high school, there were groups that formed. The jocks, the popular kids, the nerdy kids. And I get that. It makes sense. They're all interest groups. But the most interesting group to me was what, what we called the goth kids. Yeah, now, so I've got some people who are like in their early 30s here. Thank you. Now, like if you're, if you're a little younger than me, they're going to be the emo kids. And if you're a little older than me, Joe, what are they? I don't know. You're like, you were, oh, okay. Um, so if you're a little older than me, you're like, listen, they listen to Nirvana, right? And, and, and that was it. So, but here's the thing. Even these kids who are like so deeply committed to their individual expression, who are like, you know what? I'm going to go and do whatever I want. I hate everyone else. I hate everything around me. You know what they did? Hung out together. They're like, we're all individuals together. It's like. Because like, we don't want to be individuals over here by ourselves, we're individuals together. Because it's something that's deeply written into who we are as humans, is that we deeply desire to be known and to be in a community with people who are like us. And so it's foolish to seek isolation because it's in direct opposition to how God has made you. Now those communities we find ourselves in can be destructive or they can be healthy. Second point. It's so foolish to seek isolation because it's in direct opposition to how God wants to use you. It's in direct opposition to how God wants to use you. See, throughout the Bible story, and this is what it is, it's one big story, the true story of the entire world, Genesis to Revelation, where things started and where things are going. And we find ourselves somewhere towards the end. What we see again and again and again is that God works by gathering an individual to himself for the purpose of gathering more individuals. So God doesn't go and just say, hey, I'm going to choose you, and we're just going to have a killer relationship, and we're just going to, kind of, you're just going to get to know me more and more and more, and you're going to grow in your love and your faith for me, and it just kind of stops there. Like, we never see that. We just don't get to see that in the Bible. Every time that God reveals himself to somebody for relationship, it's for the purpose of gathering more people to himself. Abram. Stop doing his own thing. God reveals himself to Abram. Creates a covenant with him. Says, hey Abram, I'm going to need you to go to a land that you've never been to before. And I'm going to give you descendants greater than the number of the grains of sand on the ocean shore.
he reveals himself to Abram for the very purpose of using Abram to reveal God to the world. Moses. Moses is tending sheep in Midian. He's been doing it for 40 years. Tending sheep, just being a shepherd, doing his thing out there. All of a sudden, there's like a bush that's on fire and is talking to him. He's like, that's worth a look. Number one, if if a burning bush ever talks to you, it's probably worth checking out. And so Moses goes over to this bush and talks talks to God, and God offers relationship with Moses and says, I am the I am. I am the one who's in control of all things. I'm the preeminent one. And says, but Moses, I'm not just revealing myself to you so that you can continue going on and kind of shepherding by yourself here in isolation just for fun. Says, I'm going to reveal myself to you for the purpose of going and ransoming my people from Egypt. Joshua is used by God to claim the promised land. Joshua, right at the start of the book, kind of comes before this guy who's called the captain of the Lord's armies. He's got a sword. He's like, yo, what's up, Joshua? Joshua's like, number one, you're huge and you've got a sword. Are you with us or against us? Because that's going to determine the next step that I take. He's like, hey, I'm with you. You're on hollow ground. Take off your shoes. And then so Joshua comes up and he basically meets with God. But he doesn't stay there. (laughs) He doesn't just stay there trying to grow his relationship with God more and more and more just so that he can feel better and better and better about himself. No, what God does is God meets Joshua on that path and then says, hey, I'm going to go with you. Everywhere you go, I'm going to be with you. Do what I tell you to do and you'll have the land. Boaz is used by God to redeem Ruth and her whole family. God raises up judges. You've just studied judges, which is just insane. Number one, like just a crazy book. Like the miniseries of Judges would be made by HBO. Let's put it that way. God again and again doesn't just raise up a judge for the purpose of the judge just knowing God and having a great relationship. It's always for a greater purpose. It's always how God uses humanity is that he raises up humans to do his will, to take care of what he desires. I mean, I can go on here. But it's, it's, it's very clear to me that God uses individual, not just so that the individual would have a great relationship with God, but so that that individual would know God and would do his work. See, this is why Jesus came. Ultimately, if we want to see the fulfillment of God using a man, we look to Jesus Christ and we see that Paul writes in Colossians 1, 19 through 22, about how God has used a man for his purposes. In him, in Jesus All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. See, all this is telling us that in Jesus Christ, in the man Jesus, the fullness of God dwelt. And through Jesus, he used that man to reconcile all things to himself, everything. Whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. See, God has used the man Jesus Christ to reconcile all things to himself. It's how God works. It's that he uses us to gather followers to gather 
people, because this is why Paul goes on and says, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh in his death, in you. Now, immediately we're going to read this individually, right? Like, and me, which is true. It's true. It's, it's, it's there and it's true. But primarily, this was written to a church. It was written to the church in Colossae. And so the better way of understanding that is by saying, and y'all, to go like real southern on you here. I'm from the, I'm from the real south, by the way. <laughs> and you, and y'all, who are once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present y'all holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Y'all, one man used by God to reconcile all things. Because it's foolish to seek isolation because it is in direct opposition to how the church operates. So we're all here because we've been met by Jesus Christ. And if you're not, I want to invite you to meet him today. But quite simply, the third point here is that it's so foolish to seek isolation because it's in direct opposition to how the church operates. See, God does use individuals, yes, to gather a people, but then God also uses his church. God uses his church to redeem his world. See, Jesus reconciles all things to himself, makes peace by the blood of his cross by gathering his church and then using his church to do his work. And the way that the church works is not by God extraordinarily gifting one person with every gift on the face of the planet and saying, well, now you go out and you just do church by yourself. No, the way that God works is by giving the whole church a variety of different gifts. You're about to study this in the coming weeks, but you are all gifted in different ways. We've all heard, if we grew up in church, the 1 Corinthians 12 sermon of, well, the church is like a body, and so you know what? You should serve in kids' ministry, and you should greet, and you should work behind the scenes. That's how God works. He works by using his people in different ways, gathering them together to do his redemptive work. Not that one person is going to be used primarily in a special way outside of everybody else. No, 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 no. no God is gathering his people to work fully together. See, when this happens, when we truly understand that we don't exist as a Robinson Crusoe Christian, that there's no way that we can do the Christian life by ourselves, when we begin to realize that, we begin to become an effective and healthy church. As we all work together, as we come together, it's beautiful for everybody. Those both inside the church have their lives filled with joy and those who are outside the church are being drawn in by the supernatural work of God that makes the church body somewhat attractive. It's messy, but attractive. See, we see in the book of Acts a description of the New Testament church. Now, this is not prescriptive, it's descriptive. We're not to go back 2,000 years and kind of try and live this out. What we are is to see the description of what the church looks like and then live that out in our context. And what we see here in Acts 2, Luke writes pretty simply that they devoted themselves, just explaining what the church is like. This is what the church is like in the New Testament, that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. 
and awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Doesn't that sound like amazing to you? Doesn't that just description of what the church is like here in the New Testament just sound amazing? Like some of you are like, yeah, it sounds amazingly terrible. No, no, it sounds amazingly great. You just read that, like, like the simplicity of that life, the simplicity of like just being together, sitting under teaching, worshiping together, eating food together, making sure that, that there's nobody that's going without amongst you because some people have more possessions and more riches and so they're able to take care of those who don't have as much and everyone doesn't go without. There's awe in their souls. They receive their food with glad and generous hearts. They really just see God as their provider. They see God clearly as he truly is and they just get to experience and live in that reality. What a beautiful picture that is. How much more complex are our lives than that? How much more crazy are our lives than that picture? Man, I mean, this is just, like you hang out together, you sit under teaching together, you sing some songs together, you eat together. Come on, who doesn't like to eat? It's one of my favorite things. I have a clear, like, theological belief that there's no way you can commit the sin of gluttony in community. It's feasting. It's feasting and it's a foretaste of what is to come. Some of you are going to run me out of here. You see, church traditions are great, church councils are great, church creeds are great, all of the ways that we culturally engage, they're, they're good. But they don't instruct us on what church life is to be like as the New Testament people of God better than the New Testament does. See, this isn't some prescriptive way that we do church, but it should be descriptive of what life looks like for a Christian. Because here's the thing, we don't exist in some other dispensation of time. We don't exist in some other church. We haven't evolved past the New Testament church. We are still the New Testament church. We're still doing the things that Jesus told us to do. We're still practicing the same things that we see the New Testament church practice in the book of Acts and beyond. We are the New Testament church, and this is what should mark our lives See, if we seek isolation, we're not operating as the church should operate. And if we understand that God desires our flourishing through the way that he has designed us to live and through the way that the church functions, then we're missing out on joy and abundant life. See, finally, it's so foolish to seek isolation because to seek isolation is in direct opposition to how you will spend eternity. See, if right now you're like, you're still committed to isolation. Right now, if you're still like hard-hearted, you're like, no, nah, no, nah, ain't happening. 
Ain't gonna happen. I'm still gonna live my life the way I wanna live my life. I'm still gonna push away from being known. Like the kingdom is gonna suck for you. Like it's gonna be super, super terrible. People are gonna be all up in, in your space and people are gonna be singing and joyful all the time and people are gonna know you and they're gonna care about you and they're gonna wanna be in your life. And so if you're still like, man, isolation is the way to go, Dude, like eternity is going to suck. It's going to be terrible. Man, this is what we see. Like John gets this picture of the kingdom. And this is, this is what he tells us it's going to be like. Or part of it is going to be like. He says, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It's a picture of the kingdom. It's a picture of what is to come. It's a picture of what we're going to get to experience as God's people. People that don't look like me. People who don't act like me. People who just just are completely weird there. If we understand the church as God's tool to bring his kingdom to bear, we should be seeing some of this right now. We should be seeing some of this in our lives and how we live it out as God's people. See, what we're experiencing right now is an already but not yet of the kingdom. Already the kingdom is here, but it's not yet fully consummated, right? And so we're here in this in-between time where God is using his church to gather as many new believers to himself as he desires. But what we do and the way that that is attractive is that we show a picture of what is to come, that God's kingdom people will live together in a community that looks really weird and doesn't make a lot of sense because the community of God's people, the only thing that draws them together is the blood of Jesus Christ who has ransomed them from sin and has taken them from isolation and darkness and brought them into the community of God's light. That's what we get. Man, it's beautiful. It's spectacular. See, isolation isn't going to lead to our flourishing. But being in the community of God's people will. It will lead us to the flourishing, the foretaste of the kingdom. Now, yeah, we're still messy and we still sin against one another and we still make a wreck of our lives. That's the not yet part. It's not yet fully in reality, but we work towards that as God's people in a grace-driven motivation that says, yes, this is where I want to go. The NRSV, which is the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible, which is a different translation of the Hebrew, puts our passage this way, and it puts it really quite bluntly. Um, I, I preach from the ESV because I'm Reformed. Um, it's the elect standard version. And, and see, like, got some theology nerds here. I like that. Um, but the NRSV translate our passage like this, and it's blunt. And so if you're still feeling like, man, I'm just, I just not comfortable with being known, I'm still, I still like fear or shame or guilt or whatever is playing out in your heart that says, man, I'm just going to keep pressing back. This is, this is how it, it calls you out. The one who lives alone is self-indulgent. 
showing contempt for all who have sound judgment. If you're unsociable, if you desire isolation, if you push your, your community away, this translation calls you self-indulgent. You show contempt for those who have sound judgment. This is not a simple issue. This is not some trifle of like, oh, whatever. It's not a big deal. No, it's a huge deal. Because at the deepest root of desiring isolation, you are playing a game that says, I know better than God. God doesn't know what's good for me. I know what's good for me. And all that is, all that is, is speaking is this deep reality that you have been so distorted in your view of who you are as a human. Sin has so taken a hold of who you are that it is leading you to make life-destructing decisions. Isolation will lead to our destruction. The enemy wants us to make these decisions. He wants to isolate us. He wants to tempt us. He wants to lead us down the path of closed doors so that we can destroy ourselves. He wants us in darkness. That's what isolation gives us. And the good news of the gospel is that we're brought into the light. First John simply says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us all unrighteousness. And we need to believe that we can be brought into the kingdom of the light by living in community by confessing our sin in community, by being real and open and honest with one another in community. I uh, went ahead and kind of like took the opposite of this proverb and wrote it down in more of like an affirming way. This is the Ryan Williams version of the opposite of the Bible. So you know that it is 100% uninspired. This is, this is what the opposite of, Psalm, of, of, of Proverbs 18.1 is. It tells us that the one who lives in community is selfless, peaceful, loves others, and shows consideration for all who are wise. Doesn't that sound good? Not just because I wrote it. <laughs> but doesn't it just sound good? Doesn't it sound good? Like, the one who lives in community is selfless, peaceful, loves others and shows consideration for all who are wise? Like, doesn't it just sound like something that actually has life in it? As opposed to isolation and darkness? As opposed to pushing people away? As opposed to never being truly known, never being truly loved, never being truly cared for? Man, being selfless and peaceful and loving others and showing consideration for the wise and listening to them and letting them guide your path by having multiple voices speaking into your life who love you and care for you? Doesn't that just sound better? Doesn't that just sound like it might lead to something better than destruction? So what do we do from here, right? How do you live this out? How do we live this out right now? Well, uh, Pastor Shane's going to talk a little bit about some of the structures that you guys have here at Sound City, and I, I mean, he's going to speak about all that you guys are doing, but I think we can be kind of tricked into thinking that the structure is going to, to bring, like, is, is the one that's got the life in it, like community group structures or Bible study structures or church events are going to bring life. Like, here's the thing, structures are dead. Life grows on structures. 
So all that this church does doesn't actually have any life in it. You're the life. You're the life that grows on the community group structure. You're the life that grows on Bible studies. You're the life that grows on events. You're the ones who get to engage and bring life to the structures that this church provides. The quite simple reality of what do we do with this call against isolation and a desire to live in community is much much simpler than having to sign up for something here at the church, although that's a good thing. It can be quite as simple as being a friend. Now, we have lost, we've lost friendship somewhere along the way in our Western busyness, in our complexity, in our desire to be more and more efficient. Friendship somehow got cut off in our efficiency diagram of how we live our life. That's a tragedy. It's a tragedy because if we are designed to live in relationship with one another, if we're designed to have relationships as friends, and then our culture has said friendship is a waste of time because it won't get you up the corporate ladder, it won't put more money in your bank account, it won't get you a better house, it won't make you more comfortable, then we just said, well, I don't need friendship because I'm going to go, I'm going to have the best life I can have right now by doing all of those things things that ultimately just lead to you being isolated and alone. So you want to know how you can change someone's life, how you can be used by God to draw somebody out of isolation, or how you yourself can be drawn out of isolation? Be a good friend. Be a good friend. Know somebody. Get to know them. Love them and care for them. See, friendship is messy, especially here when we're still filled with sin and broken desires and our ambition gets the better of us. He says, well, I want to use this person for my purpose. I'll, I'll be friends with somebody while they're painting my house, but when I, I don't have any more jobs for him to do, well, I suppose the relationship should die. No, no, friendship says, I love you and I'm, I'm here for you and I'm just going to give of myself even if I get nothing back, that I'll lay down my desires for you. This is what the gospel calls us to. Greater love has no man than he lays down his life for his friends. And now I think often we understand, obviously, that's Jesus speaking of himself, laying down his life on the cross for his friends so that we can move from enemy to friend in a way that he physically laid down his life. But what if Jesus was talking about laying down our lives every single day for our friends? He says, you know what, I desire that I would get the glory here. I desire that I'd get to do whatever I want to do. What if I laid down my own desires so that my friend could feel loved, cared for, and known? What if the busyness of my life needed needed to stop so that I could actually spend more time hanging out with my friend and talking to them about their struggles and their pains? See, this requires grace for one another. But I'm just convinced that there's no greater tool to fight isolation than friendship. There's no greater tool that the Christian has to fight isolation in those that they know and in their own selves than friendship. Because to be isolated, to be unsociable, to push away says that my needs are greater than the needs of my community around me. And if we are to truly come to terms with the fact that God desires that we would live in community with one another, then we, as his people, Get to lay down our desires so that we can be better friends. Now imagine if we all did that. And I think we'd begin to see 
some of this selfless, peaceful love that shows consideration for others. We see Paul even speak about in 1 Corinthians 13 as he explains what love is like. Patient, kind, long-suffering. As we show the love to others that we have received first from God on high through his son, Jesus. So introverts, I'm calling you out. You can still be an introvert and live in community. Extroverts, calling you out. Don't get proud and arrogant because you think you can ace this. Be a good friend. Meet somebody who struggles with this and engage with them and love them. Show them consideration and care. If you're somewhere in between and you're like, I don't like labels. Like, I'm an individual. Just don't be a jerk. <laughs> Live a grace-filled life that wants to press into the community that God has on offer for you because it is for your good and your flourishing. There is hope and there is peace and there is joy and there is all the good things that God has for his people in his people. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you love us and care for us. Thank you that your grace and your mercy are present and real every moment of every day. Lord, we ask that you would bring us to a place where we can embrace your community, that you have ransomed from death, that you have taken from darkness and have brought into glorious light. Lord, lead us and guide us and bring us hope and peace Fill us with your spirit and set our eyes upon Christ who gave himself so that we might become his people, that we might be ransomed into his community. And Lord, let us gather those who do not yet know you to that community and let us live in that. And would you use us mightily and would all come upon every soul here and would you add to the number who are being saved day by day. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Do we thank Pastor Ryan for leading us? It's really easy to have a guy like Ryan come and be part of a series called Partners in the Gospel because there really is such a a deep alignment with what we believe in our philosophy of ministry and theological convictions and, and very much the convictions around this topic of isolation and community as well. Those of you who've been around a while, you've heard sermons and teachings on our core values. And so I was just jotting things down as Ryan and I were talking earlier about the ways that we seek to live this out at Sound City. And um, a couple of our core values strike right at the center of this. So we talk about intentional relationships. That's one of our nine values. We talk about community itself as one of our nine values, things that we strive for. We, we'd rather cease to exist as a church than to fail to live out these areas of what God calls us to. It makes me think of the life story tool that if you've entered a group within the last couple of years that you've probably had some experience with that is just a template that helps a structure like Ryan talked about that uh, helps drive depth of relationship by just kind of forcing you through a grid to help you think about what are the hard times in my life? What's the hand of God moments in my life? Uh, And I've heard story after story, uh, even from those of you who are introverted or who have been scared to share uh, maybe some of the more difficult parts of your story, that after you've gone through this, what great fruit that it's brought and how deep the relationships within your community groups have gone because of a tool like that. Um, That's a way that we live this out uh, here at Sound City. Our connect group, which is something that just started this year, which is a temporary place where anyone, instead of just waiting 
on a waiting list, um, everyone has a place to go and experience community while you're waiting for the possibility of being involved in long-term community. So uh, we've got layers upon layers of, of ways that we would just want to make sure and where we're trying to live out a, a deep conviction and a deep passion for uh, life in community. We've got all of our summer at Sound City events. There's been seven, eight, nine of them so far. And then we've got our Mariners game outreach coming up. And as Kyle mentioned earlier, there's people sitting in the crowd, maybe in this room right now, that weren't in here a little over a year ago before that game happened. And um, so just a deep connection, deep uh, passion for everything Ryan's had a great message for us to hear today. Now, as we reflect on that message and um, as we reflect on what God might be convicting us of in our hearts, let's turn to a time of response. Let's turn to a time of worship. And we'll respond in several different ways, as we often do. We'll respond through giving. We'll respond through receiving of the Lord's Supper together. We'll respond through singing. And then we'll also discuss some application questions and prayer points along the way as well. But we'll start uh, with our response through giving. So if our financial stewards would go ahead and come, we'll start uh, with our response through giving. Now, if you're a guest, I want to make sure that you're aware that while we never want to take the opportunity away from you, the opportunity for you to worship God through giving, if you're a guest, you're under no obligation to give. So please know that. Uh, but for the rest of us who will give, um, we want to remember that God's desire is that we would always give as worship and that we would always give joyfully. 2 Corinthians 9.7 is a verse we often look to that instructs us in this, and it says that each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And so as we give, let's make sure we're giving with that biblical principle in mind. If you've got questions about how to give, there's information on the screen for you, different ways that you can give. There's information on your weekly as well that should help you in that. And then you could also talk to any of us with a name badge on or talk to the folks out at the Connect Desk, and they can help you as well. Now, as the giving baskets are being passed right after that, you're going to see the communion element baskets coming around. And so while those are being passed, uh, let me go ahead and offer up a few discussion questions and prayer points for us to discuss in our community groups and in personal study throughout the week. I'll read them for us, but these are in your weekly as well, so you've got easy reference to them later when you need them. Number one, when are you tempted to isolate yourself? And in each case, why do you suspect you're tempted towards isolation? Number two, which one of the sermon points stood out to you the most, the four that Pastor Ryan mentioned, and why do you think it is that that one in particular stood out to you? Number three, read Proverbs 18.1 in different translations, and then which translation most resonates with you and why? Number four, in what ways are you currently pursuing biblical community with God's people? And then the other side of that coin, number five, uh, in what ways might God be asking you to grow in living in biblical community? And maybe even more importantly, are you willing to act on that prompting of your heart by God this morning? Now, we're committed to being a praying people here as well, and so here's a couple prayer points to get us started this week. Number one, pray that we would continue to grow in our understanding and experience of biblical community, both individually and as a church. And number two, let's be praying that God would use Christian community as a witness to the saving work of Jesus and that many would come to know him through our expression of biblical community. Now, we're also going to continue our time of responding through receiving the Lord's Supper together. And the Bible talks about the Lord's Supper as a memorial meal for Christians specifically. The bread reminding us of Jesus' body broken for us and the juice reminding us of Jesus' blood shed for us. And the scriptures give us instruction for doing this rightly in 1 Corinthians 11, where the Apostle Paul reminds us of the words of Jesus to his disciples. Paul saying this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Okay, it looks like most of you have the communion elements by now, so we're going to respond in song here in just a minute, and then please feel free to take the communion elements as you see fit as we respond in song. But first, let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for Foundation Church, uh, for them putting Pastor Ryan on loan for us this morning, and uh, for your teaching through Ryan this morning. We pray for your protection over Ryan and his family and over Foundation Church as well. Lord God, I pray that we would all take your teaching to us today on community and isolation, that we would take those things to heart. Pray that you'd let us be a church who fights against the isolation that is so very prominent in our culture. And we pray that you'd help each one of us, God, through the power of your Holy Spirit, to experience this kind of biblical community that you've laid out for us so clearly in the scriptures and that we've talked about here this morning. Lead us as we respond now, Lord. We pray all this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen.